love spring. I love all the new beginnings. And um, also, I love yellow saltwater sandals. So um, with that said, you guys are in for a treat because Jennifer Roth is going to come up and talk to us about the God language of contemplative. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know, how can you go wrong when Carrie is the one introducing you? You know, you're just set up for success when Carrie is your friend. If we haven't met before, I'm Jennifer Roth. I'm the pastor of Women's Ministries. I've been here. I've actually attended Salem Alliance almost 30 years, but I've been on staff for about five. Thank you. <laughs> so we are going to talk about contemplative today, but before we do that, I want to just review God languages for us. And if you've been at every gathering all year, uh, you've heard this, but if you haven't and you're joining us later in the spring here, then I want to let you know the journey that we've been on because it's kind of an important journey. So before I dive in, let's just say a prayer. Father, you know all things, and you know which pieces of the information on this paper in front of me is, are going to be aha moments for women. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you'd be present and that you, would, that you would speak to me and give me the words that you want me to say and that you would speak to these women and that you would cause them to hear the truth that you have for them today about how you've wired them and about how you've wired the people around them and what it means to be the family of Christ. In your name, amen. So God languages are also known as our spiritual temperament. Um, have you ever done anything with like the Myers-Briggs personality temperament? Recognizing that our brains are wired differently, our hearts are wired differently, and in our personality, some of us are extroverts and some of us are introverts, and some of us process information by thinking about it, and some of us are more about feeling it, and so there's all these things that we've learned along the way about our personality temperament. Well, a spiritual temperament is similar. It's that our brains are wired differently in relationship to God, and we connect with God in different ways. There are different things that stir my heart than the things that stir your heart. When we, when we become followers of, of God, we, we believe in his son, we become his children, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us, and yet that Holy Spirit quickens different parts of each one of us. And so, whereas I might sit in a worship service and just be like, oh, this is what heaven is going to be like, somebody else might go for a hike, and in the redwoods with the sun filtering through, they'd be like, oh, this is what heaven is going to be like. And somebody else might have their Bible open in front of them on their desk, and they're they're reading God's word and they're sensing his truth and he's teaching them even as they read and they're like, this is what heaven is going to be like, just knowing more and more about God and who he is. And, and these are the God languages, the, the language in which God speaks to each one of us to draw our heart near to his and to give us a connection with him. Some of you may have heard teaching on the five love languages. If you've ever gotten married, somebody probably gave you a book about it if you were in evangelical circles. And, and the different love languages are that we, we receive love differently. Some of us by physical touch. If somebody comes and gives us a hug, that fills our love tank a little bit. Others of us, it has nothing to do with physical touch. If you come and do my dishes, that fills my love tank. Um, for others, it's quality time. If you spend time with me, it doesn't matter how much you hug me, if it's just here, 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 and I never actually get to sit down and look into your eyes and see your face and spend time with you. And so even in our relationships, we have to learn to love the way the people that we love need to be loved, right? 
So my husband is quality conversation, and I'm physical touch. And so I need to sit down, and I need to talk with him. I need to ask him about work. I need to ask him about the stressors that are going on. I need to let him vent. For him, that speaks love. He needs to give me foot rubs and neck rubs and back rubs, and he needs to hug me every time he walks past me in the house. And then I will know that I am loved. And so he wants to talk with me to show me that I'm loved. And I want to give him a back rub to show him that he's loved, right? Okay, this isn't what I'm talking about today, so that's your bonus, I'm done. <laughs> We're talking about God languages, not love languages, but they're similar, right? Because if my God language is, uh, let's take caregiver, for instance, which I score really low on caregiver if you ever take the assessment. And if you're my friend, you know this, because I'm good at a lot of things, but not caregiving. Um, unless you're my children, and then I try really hard to be better at it. <laughs> so let's take caregiver. Let's say that God wired you to reflect the nature of his character that is caring for others, that is noticing their need and entering in to fill that need. Okay? That could be through taking a meal. That could be through sending an encouragement note. That could be through watching somebody's kids. There's all sorts of ways, but caregivers are just so wired that they notice when you're in need and they enter in to help in whatever way that they can. I'm guessing that even if that's not you, you know people like that. And that that's that place that the caregiver feels that deepest connection with God and their heart is stirred when they are able to reflect that aspect of his character. So let's say your God language is caregiving and you come to church week in and week out. And at church, we worship. Worship is good. Even if your God language is something different, we are called to worship. We are created to worship. So we worship through song and we receive teaching and once a month we take communion and sometimes we join a small group, and in that small group, we study the Bible together. And you've gone to church for 18 years, and nothing in that worship, Bible study, teaching has ever stirred your heart. And yet you know outside the church that you've got friends, that you're, and, and you come alive when you're giving care to them, and yet you've never connected that this come alive is connected to what you're doing at church and the God who you worship at church and, and who you are at church. That this is actually God at work, and that this is a way of drawing near to him, and that this caregiving is part of spiritual development and part of your spiritual practices. Because at church you've been taught that you're supposed to have your devotions and read the Bible and pray, and those are all good things. You should do those things. They're good for you. Don't, don't listen to shoulds. I'm being sarcastic whenever I should on you, okay? Don't should on yourself either. It's not good, okay? Let's just follow God with how he created us to be. How do you translate that? <laughs> so you're this caregiver who's been doing everything you think you're supposed to do to follow God, and yet you don't feel close to God because you don't recognize that this sense of aliveness over here is closeness to God. Uh, the same can be true for the activist. Um, I know of young people who've walked away from the church, and they are so involved in meeting the needs of the poor and the oppressed, and they are passionate about it, but they don't realize that God is also passionate about it. Because the only God languages they were exposed to was the God language of intellectual, we should study the Bible, and the God language of enthusiast, we should be worshiping God, and they don't recognize the God language of activist is absolutely as much a heartbeat of the living God as your worshiper, or your studier, or your fellowshipping, or the things that are traditionally lined up with church. Is this making sense? 
So you have folks who walk away from church and they say, I tried God, it didn't work for me, because they don't understand this concept that there are God languages and there are different ways that we connect to God. And that's why we've spent the whole year highlighting one each gathering so that we could begin to recognize, number one, for those of us who don't fit in the mold of what happens in the traditional places of Christianity, oh my goodness, I am connecting to God. This is how he made me. This is something I have to offer his kingdom, and it is just as important as these other things that I've put up higher. And then we also realize that, oh my goodness, I thought I was doing everything the way it was supposed to happen, and I was kind of judging these other people who weren't in a Bible study or who weren't doing the, the way I did it. And we got to drop our judgments and our comparisons and say, there are different ways that we approach God, and we can be a stronger, more unified body of Christ when we celebrate the fact that God is not small. If we are a reflection of his image, no one person can reflect the entirety of his image. It takes all of us and many, many more to reflect all the different facets of who God is. And so you reflect a piece of God, and I reflect a piece of God, and you reflect a piece of God, and together we make up the beauty that in some small way reflects the beauty of God to a world that doesn't know him. But only when we will walk in our own beauty, in our own God language, in our own ways, embracing that and allowing others to embrace theirs and not try to project how we relate to God onto somebody else. So this is why we did God Languages. This is why we've been talking about it so long. And so we're going to do a really quick review. If you want, there's a paper on your table that has this written down. You can take that with you. These are just short snippets. If you're looking at any of them and you're like, I didn't go to all the gatherings or I missed a few, all of the gatherings that had a good recording are on our podcasts. So on the Salem Alliance webpage, on the Women's Ministries page, there's a sidebar that says Women's Podcasts. And you can get our women's retreats. You can get the gatherings. Um, after refresh, we'll get that posted up. You can get those seminars from refresh. So um, we're trying to keep that pretty current as far as having the teaching on there. So if there's any of these that you're like, wow, I want to know more, go look up which podcast it was, and you can listen to what we talked about that month. So the activist is one who loves God through confrontation with evil. We talked about that. The ascetic, loving God through solitude and simplicity. This is the... Um, this is the, the person who, who likes to draw away by themselves in the quiet, who doesn't like a lot of clutter around their home. Actually, those, um, the, the fasting and the praying, the, the self-discipline, the, the setting aside the self to seek God, that is the desire of an ascetic. The caregiver, loving God through serving others. We keep going. The contemplative, that's what we're going to talk about today. Loving God through adoration. The enthusiast, loving God through mystery and celebration. Well, we talked about this, the very first one. The enthusiast is the person who, if you're not an enthusiast, you're probably thinking, oh, she's just showy and wants other people to notice her. Because she just loves the mystery and the celebration of being with God. So when we worship, she's the one with her eyes closed and her face up and her arms out wide. And she doesn't care what you think. And you know what? She's not trying to be showy. It's just, she's just so awed by God that she can do nothing but show it with her whole body. She's got to move. You know, we don't dance at Salem Alliance, but we kind of, you know, that's your enthusiast. <laughs> the intellectual, loving God through the mind. This is the person who just loves Bible study. You see an intellectual in their happy place, and they have a Bible dictionary, a Bible commentary, their Bible, and a few other books about what they're reading about, because they love to just get their hands deep into God's word. 
the naturalist, loving God through experiencing him outdoors. Uh, you don't want to miss May. We're going to end in May with the naturalist, and we're praying for good weather because we'd like to be outside for that. The sensate, loving God through the senses, sight, smell, touch. These people like to light a candle or have a fragrance, have something that they can focus on, and, and their senses bring them um, into God's presence. I, I have a friend who will say, you know, I, I can take or leave worship, that's fine, but I'll sit in a cathedral and weep because of the, the beauty of what has been built to honor God and to be in God's presence. I don't get it. I'm not a sensate, but I know that it is true. Traditionalist, loving God through ritual and symbol. These are the people who love to do religion the way that it's always been done, and they love to do it the way that others are doing it because they feel a part of the whole when they are celebrating communion at the same time. So these people love Easter because starting with the, the part of the world that starts the earliest, all that 24 hours, they know that all around the world they are celebrating the resurrection of Christ with the believers all over the world. These people love, there's a book called the Book of Common Prayer, and you pray certain prayers every day. And traditionalists are those who would love that book because when they pray this prayer on April 8th, then so are all the rest of the people in the world praying the same prayer, and there's this sense of unity and being together with God's family when we do things the way. These are the people who, did you guys know that there are like spiritual attributes attributed to color? If you want to know what they are, find a traditionalist. And they will tell you that purple is royalty, and white is purity, and green is growth, and gold is something else. Am I right? Any traditionalists in the room? Nod your head at me. Yep. And so, so these are the people who love to connect with the history and the deep roots of Christianity and, and bring that into their daily practice. One of the things that is true also about the God languages, so we've got the aha I didn't realize that this was a part of how God wired me for his kingdom. We've got the, oh yeah, we need to respect and honor and not judge each other for the unity in the body of Christ. And then we also have our own personal spiritual growth because it's often the spiritual practices of the temperaments that are most unlike mine that help me gain what I lack and truly need. So I am an enthusiast, that's part of my makeup, and yet I need the silence and solitude of the ascetic. I need to pull away and be quiet and to, and to strip everything else away and just be with Jesus. And that helps my soul grow. And so another piece of why we do this is to recognize that even though there might be one that is my bread and butter, this is how God and I relate, I need to know some spiritual practices and some ways of entering into each God language so that I become more and more mature, more able to understand the people around me, and more aware of who God is in me. And so our growth often happens in those practices that aren't like our own, which some of you who've been coming all month have done all year, have really done this, because each time we've done a particular God language, we've had some sort of practice that we've had you do and you guys have entered in, even if it wasn't your God language. And I know I've heard back from different women who've said, that was really good. That was eye-opening. That was important. That was hard. I didn't really get that. But, but you guys have entered in willingly, and I appreciate that so much as we mature together. So, diving into contemplative. The contemplative is perhaps one of the least understood God languages for the people who aren't contemplative. It's one that is difficult to explain. As a matter of fact, uh, back when I was in college, I took a class called Math for Elementary Education Majors. 
And one of the things he told us was that people who are good at math are generally bad math teachers. <laughs> because if I understood math as I grew up, the first time my teacher taught me the algorithm or the formula or how to do it, I just understood it, it just came naturally, my brain's wired that way. Then when I'm in a classroom and I'm teaching somebody who doesn't get it the first time around, what do I tell them? I don't have, I tell them it's easy, and I don't have any way around, I don't have any way around they're not understanding it to explain it a different way because I just understood it this way. And so one of the things this math for elementary education majors taught us was, and I'm sorry if you hate math and this goes like this, but I'm going to explain it anyway. He made us do all of our math work in a different system. So we use a base 10 system. We count to nine, and then we start over again with a one and a zero. It changes at 10. That's a base 10 system. He made us do work in base five and base seven and base 12, which is where you go up to five, and then when you switch to one zero, that's six. And when you switch to one one, that's seven. So you're doing triple digit multiplication in a different base. Your brain is fried. And he made us do it to make it harder to bring us back to the level of a first, a second, and a third grader and say, this is how they feel when you start telling them this is the ones column and this is the tens column and you're supposed to put things in this order, right? So in the same way, bringing it back to God languages, I might be the worst teacher on contemplative there is because I'm a contemplative through and through. And I just live in this, and I'm not sure I know the ways around to tell you what it looks like to be a contemplative other than just, like, don't you just get it? It's easy. <laughs> so that's what we're going to try to do today. Bear with me. Um, and we're going to have an interview a little bit later with Melissa, who's also a contemplative. Because really what we want to do is just give you a picture of what it's like in the mind and the heart of somebody who relates to God in a contemplative way. So here are some of the basics about being contemplative. For a contemplative, it's not about what you do. It's about being. It's about just sitting at the feet of Jesus and being in his presence. You know, the, the tagline says, loving God through adoration. And there's just this sense of, I just want to be with you. I want to be friends with you. I want to know that you love me. I want your heart connected to me. And in the Bible, there's a couple examples of this. One is the um, woman, we've got a picture coming up, and it's this woman at the feet of Jesus. This picture happens to be of the woman who was caught in adultery. And it was given to me when I was in um, Kurdistan, northern Iraq. Uh, Barbara Fletcher and I had gone to do a women's retreat there, and one of the women, after hearing the teaching at the retreat, made a copy of a canvas that she had for me. And I love this picture of this woman as this contemplative picture, because you see her eyes are just focused on Jesus. She's broken, she's accused, she knows the mess in her life, and yet this is a safe place for her. Because if you remember the story, Jesus said, let he who has never sinned cast the first stone. And everybody left. And he looked down at her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all left. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. Because you see, Jesus was the only one there who had never sinned. And by law, she was supposed to be stoned. And he did not do that. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. 
And for my contemplative heart, this picture is a picture of the safety of being at Jesus' feet, knowing that he promises that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So no matter what the mess is in my life, no matter what the struggles I have or the test that I'm facing or the, the pain or the conflict that I'm in or the sin that has been exposed in my own life, whether it's been exposed to others or I just am aware of it, at his feet, in his presence, is my safest place. Another biblical example is Mary, the sister of Martha. Remember Mary and Martha? The disciples came over. Martha was busy getting everything pretty and getting the food ready, and Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet, which did you know that women were not allowed to sit at the feet of rabbis? Women were not allowed to listen to the teaching of the rabbis, and yet not only did Jesus defend her right to be at his feet, he defended her right to not have to go and do what Martha was doing. He said, no, she gets to stay. She gets to stay at my feet. This is a contemplative. They just can't get enough of Jesus. Another biblical example is John, the disciple of Jesus who wrote the book of John. And if you notice reading the book of John, he never refers to himself by name. He always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. That was his identity. That's how he saw himself. After walking this earth with Jesus for three years and reporting on what that was like, his identity was so deeply rooted in the fact that he was loved by Jesus that it was the most important thing that he wanted to say about himself. He didn't even use his name. When he told stories that included him, he said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we find him at the Passover, the night before Jesus is crucified, leaning, reclining at the meal against Jesus' breast. He just can't get enough of Jesus. And this is the contemplative. Life is primarily about growing in intimacy with Jesus and resting in God's presence. For the contemplative, being purpose-driven has no inspiration whatsoever. Uh, remember several years back when The Purpose-Driven Life was the big book? How many of you read The Purpose-Driven Life? All right? I bought The Purpose-Driven Life. I looked at The Purpose-Driven Life. I thought I should do The Purpose-Driven Life, and it held no interest for me whatsoever. I read maybe a couple chapters, and I'm like, eh, eh, whatever. And yet, I felt shame because, well, everybody's doing The Purpose-Driven Life, and it's kind of the Christian wave right now, so what's wrong with me? Am I backsliding? Am I not passionate enough? Am I not disciplined enough? Like, what's wrong with me that I'm not diving into what's taking the whole church by craze right now, which is The Purpose-Driven Life? And now I know that what was wrong with me wasn't wrong at all. There are people who are wired for purpose, for goals. This is how they want to function. I don't get them, but that's how they want to function, and they function well with that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when I then project myself into their world and say, this is the way for me to succeed, for me to feel closest to God, for my Christian walk to be matured and built up, well, that's a mistake because that's not how I'm wired. I'm not wired for the purpose-driven life. A contemplative is wired for the person-driven life. They are drawn to Jesus. And, and it doesn't really matter if anything's being accomplished or not. Their soul is being filled and they are in, the, in, in God's presence. There are things happening that they may be able to put words to and they might not be able to put words to. As a matter of fact, when you talk about God languages, it's really important to recognize that our personality impacts how our God language plays out. So there are extroverted contemplatives and there are introverted contemplatives. I happen to be an extroverted contemplative. I'm very verbal. There are others who are not very verbal contemplatives, and you can, you can see the verbal extroverted contemplatives a mile away. They're the people who make you feel a little or a lot uncomfortable. They just, they, they, they're so focused on being so close to God that you're just kind of like, 
ah, I just don't, I feel like I'm, it's kind of like PDA. There's kind of too much affection being displayed here for me. I, you, you're kind of in this intimate place, and, and I don't think I'm supposed to be witnessing this. <laughs> They're the people who seem so lost in their own world with Jesus that they, they don't quite make sense to you. Contemplatives need to spend quite a bit of time outside the mainstream because they need to protect their thought life. And let me explain this. When I was in about high school, I remember that I began to have an amazing conviction about certain music and movies and books that I just did not think were good for me. And I wanted all of my friends to understand that they shouldn't read those books or watch those movies or listen to that music either. Now, I still think there are probably some movies you shouldn't watch, some books you shouldn't read, and some music you shouldn't listen to, but I recognize now that I am much more sensitive than even great mature believers. Because of how my brain and my heart are wired, I have to protect what goes into my head and my heart. And I am very sensitive to entertainment stuff that is immoral or just even slightly leaning towards immorality. And I always have been. And I'm understanding now that part of that is because I'm contemplative and God wired me to sit in his presence okay in the mystery of not really knowing what we're doing here, but we're just being together, and there's something that's happening, and, and it's often in those places that what I call a Holy Spirit download happens for me, that something will come to make sense in my head, a thought will come into my head, a story will come into my head that, that puts the pieces of life in order, and God is speaking to me in that place, and if I am so cluttered up with the distractions of this world, then I can't hear him, and I'm wired to need to be still and listen and hear him. Contemplatives often astound us with their freedom to draw close and experience the God who comes near. And I don't know what it's like to not be a contemplative, but I can tell you that there's this sense of knowing in my spirit when I recognize that God is present with us and I am present with him. And like I said, it doesn't matter if I can ever verbalize what happened in that moment. There is something that deepened in that moment that matters. That's being a contemplative. I'm going to invite Melissa up to share with us. We're going to do a little interview here. And on her way, can somebody hand her the microphone? Because I don't have this one tonight. Thank you, Kara. So this is Melissa Garner. And Melissa is a dear friend of mine. We've both been at Salem Alliance for 25 years-ish or so. <laughs> and uh, Melissa got in touch with Kara and said, you guys are doing contemplative this month. This is the one I identify with. And we said, we would love to hear from you. So long before God languages were ever on your radar, Melissa, you learned a way of relating to God that you now recognize is contemplative. Tell us about that. So when I was in high school, my mom read to us all the time. And frankly, we always groaned when she pulled out a Christian book because they were boring. Um, but she pulled out this little tiny book that's out of print now called Discovering How to Pray by Hope McDonald. And in it, one of the chapters is called Find a Quiet Place. And that chapter described that when you try to find a quiet place to pray, you don't, aren't always guaranteed a physical quiet place to pray. But you can always create a quiet place in your mind to take with you wherever you go. And that completely changed the way that I related to Christ because I spent a considerable amount of time of designing and decorating, it's really plain, um, the space where I meet Jesus. And that, you can go. Yeah. Yep. Okay. 
So that space is a one-room place. It's not a cottage. Um, on the right-hand side is a river rock fireplace with a really deep um, hearth so that we can sit up there and sometimes curl up in front of the fire. Um, there's a couch and a couple of chairs, and frankly, I don't know why the chairs are there because I never use them, but I only use the couch. Um, so sometimes when I'm exhausted, I will close my eyes and have Jesus sit at one end of the couch, and I lay my head on his lap and fall asleep there. Um, on the left-hand side is a huge bookcase and card catalog system. I love that she has a card catalog system in her mind's quiet place. <laughs> I just love that about you, Melissa. And shockingly for me, there is no technology in a room anywhere. Um, <laughs> that's shocking. Um, but one of the things that is true about that bookcase is that it holds a copy of every book I've ever read. And I frequently judge what I am reading by what I want that to be in the room where Jesus is. And sometimes I go, I don't freaking care. I'm just going to read it anyway. And I get embarrassed <laughs> by it later. Um, um, but the front and the back of that are both full glass. And outside is scenery you'd never see in real life. It is rolling hills with short grass and no weeds. And there's a couple of Palomino horses outside. And sometimes I go riding with Jesus. Um, I had a horse then growing up. Um, the other place where I meet Jesus is under very different circumstances. So that, that space is for when I want to meet Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. When I am in corporate worship or when I am with a group of people that really gets, you know those times when it's holy and you're with those people, I go to heaven. And I have a whole picture of the throne room of heaven that I put myself in. And there's times when there's pillars around, pillars in an amphitheater and there's pillars around the back end and I just hang out on a pillar and hang on to it because I'm not worthy to be in the presence of the people who are worshiping. But there's other times when I just ignore everyone else and go climb up on God's lap. And there's other times when I am so thrilled, I'm not, I am not an enthusiast. However, <laughs> there are some times in my mind <laughs> that all I can do because God is so amazing is fly and dance for him. And I certainly don't look like this when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, last night you were sharing with us that sometimes when you're talking to somebody, you just start to lean. Mm -hmm. How come? Um, Jesus is always with me. And I can, even without closing my eyes, put myself in that room. And when I'm talking to someone where the conversation is really difficult, there's sometimes when I just lean into him and say, just put your arm around me and help me talk like you would talk. Because I can't do this one on my own at all. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So what else would you want these folks to know about being contemplative in a world of evangelical non-contemplatives? Sometimes it's just the practice of closing your eyes and creating a space for yourself. You don't have to go to the elaborate designing of a total space like I have, although you're welcome to. Um, sometimes when I am in service, when the pastor is doing the blessing, I actually do that. 
and I physically receive the blessing that I've been given. Um, but then I'm at Salem Alliance and I feel really weird, and so sometimes I do this. <laughs> uh, so it's just making the habit of Jesus being with you wherever you go. Um, some of you know that I had leukemia this last year, and having a quiet place that I could tote with me into the hospital room was a huge blessing, yeah. and one I didn't anticipate that I would ever need in that way. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah. Thanks for coming. You can give that back to Kara. I appreciate it. So what's fascinating to me is another high schooler could have read the same chapter of the book that Melissa's mom read and said the same things and maybe even tried it, creating this quiet place in their head. But part of the reason that that took root and became an anchor for Melissa is because of how God wired her. And so she discovered something in trying something she'd never done before that has become a piece of who she is and a foundation for who she is in Christ. And so we need to not discount. Somebody else, you know, an activist might have read that chapter and gone, a quiet place in your mind? Like, does, and, and, and I've heard people talk about this before. You know, what do your chairs look like? Where does Jesus sit? Where does Holy Spirit sit? Where does Father sit, you know? And an activist is going, who cares where they sit? What are we supposed to do? There are hurting people in this world. There are places that we need to go. There are things that need to be done, right? And so the activist who reads that chapter would be dead wrong to judge the author and the people who find that the strength and their core strength is coming up and that when she's in the room being treated for leukemia, she has a quiet place to retreat with Jesus and he is caring for her because he placed it in her years and years and years ago. See, there's another thing we respond differently to from our God languages. I actually really love thinking through this one. I think it's kind of hilarious. So, devotional books, okay? Even though contemplatives may be a little out of step with the rest of the world, they're often the ones who compose the songs that stir our hearts and write the books that make us think a new way. And so I, it's my premise, and I could be wrong, that most devotional books are probably written by people who have a little bit of the contemplative in them. Because they, they love to sit with Jesus. So take this one. I'm holding up Jesus Calling. If you don't know the premise of Jesus Calling, Sarah Young would spend daily time with God, and she just sensed God talking to her and God speaking to her. And so she began to write things out as if it was God speaking to us. So here was April 5th. Let me fill you with my love, joy, and peace. Isn't that such a great contemplative saying? These are glory gifts flowing from my living presence. Though you are an earthen vessel, I designed you to be filled with heavenly cont contents. Your weakness is not a deterrent to being filled with my spirit. On the contrary, it provides an opportunity for my power to shine forth more brightly. And the contemplative will open this up and read this and go, oh, this is exactly what I needed for today. This is so great. And the activist will open this up and go, who needs a book? There are things to do. And the caregiver will open this up, and they'll be a little bit nicer, but they'll be like, okay, if it tells us to care for somebody, that's fine, but really I have a lasagna to make and laundry to deliver to somebody that I cleaned it for, and I got other things that I need to do, and the, the intellectual is going, this isn't the Bible. <laughs> like, isn't that a sin to write as if you're God if you're not God? 
The naturalist is going, okay, there's a picture of a tree on the book, but why would I want to look at a picture when I could just go out on a hike and just see the glory of God and what he created and be aware of his great love for me because he created these beautiful things for me? You know, the traditionalist is going, well, if Sarah Young had, you know, done this, if, this, if I had grown up with Sarah Young, okay, then I'd continue to read Sarah Young. But it's not the hymns that I always sing, and it's not My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers, and it's not <laughs> the sensate. Lori, tell me, does the sensate even own Jesus Calling? Okay. Does the sensate open Jesus Calling? No. Yeah. <laughs> And the enthusiast, the enthusiast is just kind of a happy mix of, there isn't really time to read, but oh my goodness, I bet this is great. <laughs> For a contemplative, it's kind of wrapped up in the present. Con contemplation invites us to enter into the moment with a heart alive and whatever might happen. So it's not just about analyzing and thinking. Some people think, okay, to contemplate means to think about something. So the contemplative are the people who like to think about Jesus. It goes so much deeper than that. It's not just thinking or analyzing an event or person. Contemplation asks us to see with faith, hope, and love. The contemplative, like I said before, can enter into the mystery of, I don't have to get anything out of this. I just want to notice, where is God in this? You know, we can, we can contemplate each other. When I'm present with you, if I am looking in your eyes and I am listening to you, that's being a contemplative. It's entering into the moment. It's being alive to the moment that I am in. And in this God language sense, it's then being alive to the moment that I am in with God and being present in that place. So contemplatives invite us into the moment and tell us to be not just do, not just accomplish, not just succeed, but to be in God's presence. I have mentioned before in this setting that I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, not only am I driven to do the right thing, I'm driven to think the right thing, like to not have a thought be birthed in my head that isn't correct. It's kind of hard to self-correct your thoughts before they come out, but I work really hard at it, and it's exhausting. The same is true for feelings. I am motivated to feel the right things. I had a spiritual mentor tell me about a month ago. She said, Jennifer, I have something to tell you about feelings. You don't get to choose what they are. You don't get to control them. Feelings are a gift that God gives us to tell us something about what's going on in our life. And so we receive feelings. They're not right or wrong. They're not sin or not sin. They're not good or bad. They are feelings. And then from receiving those feelings, we decide how we will act. And so this perfectionism is, so, is driven so deeply in me that me and myself and I in my own head is a really, really, really bad combination for me because I am really hard on myself. And there's just not about anything that I ever do good enough. And so sometimes in this contemplative way, because for me, 
being contemplative means that I've got a running conversation with God going on in my head. When I am in the car, when I am at home, when I am, my first thoughts waking up in the morning are towards God and where is he and where am I and what does this day look like? My last thoughts as I am falling asleep are about how did I do today and did I follow God well today? And, and I've got this running conversation with God in my head, but there are times that the perfectionist gets louder and I think I'm having a running conversation with God and it's not. It's a running conversation with my internal critic. And so learning to discern the voice of God from the voice of that internal critic, learning to recognize in Scripture what the nature and character of God is so that when my internal critic gets the upper hand, I can say, no, that doesn't sound like God. So because I'm a recovering perfectionist, I get a daily email in my inbox that is for recovering perfectionists. And it reminds me of the things that I am drawn towards, of the things that are my, my fears. So the, the fear of a perfectionist is that at my core I'm bad and that, that really I'm not okay. And so everything I do needs to prove that I'm not bad. And so th the other day I got one in my inbox that I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was something along the lines of, how long are you going to search for that time when you are perfect and exactly as you are, everything is in your idealized world correct? And when will you realize that perhaps you already have that when you are in the presence? The presence being the presence of God. That in God's presence, I am holy. I am dearly loved. I am blameless in his sight. And this is why the contemplative place is so important for me. Because at the feet of Jesus is the only place that I am safe from myself. That place that I can recognize that when I am in God's presence, I truly sit in the place that I am not bad, but I am loved. And this is being contemplative for me. In practice, there's one other thing I want to describe for you. There's... Um, Melissa described uh, pictures that she's, she's got these places that she goes to and, and her quiet place are these pictures in her mind. And I don't know if it's true of all contemplatives, but that's also a way that I really connect with God is, is just to ask him, Lord, what does this look like? So for example, in John, I love John chapter 14 through 17. I think it's 15 that talks about abiding in the vine and remaining in God. And it talks about you can bear no fruit if you're not connected to the vine. And so over and over again, it says, abide in me. Some some translations say remain in me. And that's all great, and I love to read it. And the intellectual might read it and look at the Greek and cross-reference. And, and you know what? The intellectuals are the ones who bring God's word alive to us. They're the best teachers out there. I like to dig into God's word that way when I'm getting ready to speak or teach or preach. But when I'm engaging in God's word for my own personal spiritual growth, I like to sit in a passage and camp there for a while and read it and reread it, kind of chew on it, like maybe like a cow chews its cud, you know, you chew it for a while, you set it aside for a while, you bring it back and chew it for a while. I know that's the picture you wanted to take with you today. <laughs> and so interacting with scripture in this way, this whole idea of remain in me, abide in me, remain in the vine, I'm like, this is just so great and so rich and so, what does it mean? What, I got to get up in the morning, and I need to get my kids to school, and then I need to come to work, and then I need to pick my kids up from school, and I need to figure out what's for dinner, the worst part of my day. <laughs> I need to make dinner, which is not a bad part of the day. It's just about figuring it out and making sure you have the groceries on hand. 
and collapse into bed at the end of the day having accomplished all that needed to be done. That's just living. I have to do that every day, and if I'm lucky, maybe I get some exercise. And so how does this word of God, John 15, remain in me, abide in me, stay in the vine, have anything to do with the practicalities of what has to happen today in my world? And so I began to ask God, God, what does it look like for me to remain in you today? What does this look like? And there were some different pictures that would come up in my mind, and I would touch back on those different pictures during, on different days. And so one of those is just a picture of, of me in God's arms. And I'm just a child in his arms, and he's holding me close, and my head is against his chest on the left side so that I can hear his heartbeat. And when I say a picture in my mind, I don't actually see that out there. It's actually like I'm present in it here. I am in Jesus' arms, and I'm hearing his heartbeat, and this is what it means to remain in him today. Today, while I drive 100 miles of carpooling and make the meals and make the lunches and come to work and sit on the couch and binge on some movie to just make myself feel better about all the driving I've done today— I'm in God's arms, and he's holding me close, and I can hear his heartbeat. Other days, you know, God, what does it look like to be in your presence today, to remain in you today? Um, it's a picture through the woods, and there's this beautiful wooded path along a stream, and the sunlight is coming down through the trees, and I'm just walking side by side with Jesus, sometimes hand in hand with Jesus, and it's kind of this, this sense of the, of the good friends who are processing the day and talking about what's coming and, and asking advice and, and, and being present with each other in that way. Um, at other times... Have any of you ever been to the Awesome 3000? How many of you have been to the Awesome 3000? Okay, I have to explain it because there's a bunch of you who haven't. The Awesome 3000 is one of the best events in Salem. Even if you never have kids, don't have any in the event, you should go down and watch it just once to experience it. And make sure you stay for the special needs race. Make sure you stay for the special needs race. So the Awesome 3000 brings all these kids. There's rabid parents in the stands at McCullough Stadium, and they start the first grade girls in this bunch of like 250 down the track, and they go 100 meters, and they go out the fence, and they run around a little bit for Bush Park, and then they come back in, and when they come back in, they do 300 meters around the track in front of the stands, and they finish their run, okay? Now, first of all, when the, all the parents in the stands, when the 200 are at the starting line, they're like, they got their binoculars, and like, oh, I see her. She's the one in the yellow shirt. They all have yellow shirts. They're all the same shirts every year. So you learn to, like, put your kid's hair up in spikes and spray paint it pink. Because, like, one year we did really bright-colored socks. Well, I don't know if you know this, but you can't see their socks when they're in a crowd of 200. So the next year we did super long, bright-colored shorts. Can't see those either. You can't change your shirt, so we've learned to either wear a hat, but those come off mid-race. So spray painting the hair is really the best. Trust me, if you haven't been there yet, pink and orange show up the best. Um... Or if you're really bold, have them wear a different shirt because then you can tell where your kid is. So all the parents are going, no, there she is. No, no, no. And the binoculars, and, the, and I'm not kidding. Oh, okay, you see the guy in the big red shirt? Look three kids to the right and look down, and just the tip of her head, it's right there. That's where she is. <laughs> so they all go out. Inevitably, somebody falls, and then the whole tramples them, and you hope they're not hurt too bad. And... So they all go out, and then the parents chit-chat in the stands, and then the first kids start to trickle back. And something changes, because every parent is talking, but they're watching. And they're watching for when theirs comes through. 
And then when theirs comes through, they turn into rabid human beings. And they're like, wah, wah, and I've got this friend, his name is Chad, and he's crazy. He's always been crazy. And so to sit with him at, at, at Awesome 3000 is awesome. And so Chad has this daughter. Her name is Elsie. It's spelled E-L-S-I-E, okay? Super cute name, Elsie. So this one year we're at Awesome 3000. Elsie comes through the gate. Chad goes crazy. Yeah, Elsie, come on, whoa! He's just yelling his heart. Pretty soon he goes to nobody in particular. Give me an L! L! Give me a C! C! What does it spell? Elsie! Ha, 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 ha! And he cracks himself up. He's laughing like a madman, cracking himself up at his own joke about Elsie. I cry, as you can tell, every time my kids come through. Every time. My son likes to run backwards, just because that's who he is. <laughs> so we're like going, go Titus, you can catch the two kids in front of you, run fast, finish strong, go Titus! And he's like, <laughs> and you're like, why'd you run backwards? I felt like it. You're like, I love you. I li you know, our firstborn is like, I'm gonna be in the top 10. Our secondborn is like running backwards, and our thirdborn is just Abigail. She's just, she's still running it. We'll be there again this year for the fourth grade girls. By the way, the special needs race is 300 meters on the track, and, and it's amazing, right? It's amazing. It's really cool to watch. That's one of my pictures of what it means to abide in God. He's Chad in the stands, cracking himself up, doesn't care what people around him think. I'm his girl. I just came on the track, and he is a rabid father just cheering me on in what I'm doing. I am so proud of you, Jennifer. I am so proud of what you're doing today. Go get them. I will be right here. I am watching for when you come through the gate. I will not miss this. That's abiding in God. Another one. God, what does it look like to abide in you today? This one surprised me the first time I had this picture, and I went, oh, okay. It is the reality. And it was, it was God and I standing side by side, and we were in front of a minefield. I imagine like World War II Europe, in those places where the villages were after the enemy pulled away, they left landmines. And, 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 we, and we have to cross it. There's no choice. This is what today holds. We are crossing the field with the landmines. And just stay close, and I got this. I'm with you. I know where they're going to explode. It doesn't mean we're not going to get hurt. Because that's not true to life, is it? We don't always avoid all the landmines. There are conflicts. There are rejections. There are failures. There are our own sin. There are things that hurt and that wound and that maim. And God is with us. This is what being contemplative means for me. This is what it looks like. We're going to take some time to do a contemplative spiritual practice. I've tried to choose one that's not too far out there because I recognize that, like, picturing yourself in heaven with wings and able to fly isn't necessarily for everybody. <laughs> and I think it's beautiful that it's not for everybody. That some of us see God in pictures, and some of us see God intellectually, and there's never been a picture about God that's ever been, so you're like, a picture? What do you mean? Did somebody color it? I, I don't get that. And yet, as I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes it's entering into a practice that's not our first draw that will help us recognize God in a new way. 
So I'm going to invite you, Volanda's going to turn on a little bit of music, and I'm going to invite you to just sit comfortably at your table, to close your hand, eyes, and to take a deep breath, okay? Maybe both feet on the ground and your hands in your lap, okay? I'm going to sit on the couch. I'm going to trade you places. So we're just going to take some time to be quiet here. And as you take some deep breaths and get comfortable, I want to invite you to intentionally place yourself in the presence of Jesus. For some of you, that just might be as simple as saying, okay, I'm here, Jesus. And some of you might have a picture or a place that you like to say this is in Jesus' presence. Some of you just might need to just be still in your chair and recognize that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And whether you feel it or are understanding it or not, he's with you. So just be present with Jesus. So as you've taken some deep breaths and intentionally placed yourself in the presence of Jesus, I invite you to turn your palms down and begin to drop your cares, your worries, agendas, and expectations into Jesus' hands. We all came with some things clinging to us, fears, anxiety, things we have to do when we're done today, busyness, a relationship, a conflict, a busy day. Let all of that go. Anything that's heavy or burdensome, relax and breathe deeply. You might need to go through your list and one by one drop those things. You may just need to be still and breathe deep and let it shed off without any list going through your brain. When you've given your cares to Jesus, and some of you might be only halfway through your list, it's okay. When you feel like you've released the things that are heavy and burdensome to Jesus, turn your palms up, open on your knees, and open your hands to receive God's presence, his word, and his love. Listen for him. And this may just come in a sense of peace with no understanding or other thoughts going through your mind that might be a verse that comes to mind or God might want to talk to you about something that you've been worried about. I don't know what that'll look like for you, but with your hands open in a posture of receiving from God, allow him to give what he wants to give today. Be still with him. This is a practice that some of you are going to wish that we had a lot more time for today. But as we, as we end together, 
and if you ever did this on your own, feel free to just sit as long as you need. Take a little time in your mind to tell the Lord what it was like for you to simply be with him. For some of you, that might be gratitude. It might be a response to what you thought he was, heard him telling you. It might be an admission that that was hard for me. I didn't really have any feeling or sense at all. But just tell God, whatever it is, honestly, what it was like to be with him. So, Father, we are your beloved daughters who approach you in so many different ways, and yet you are the one true God, never changing, the same yesterday and today and forever, and you meet us exactly where we need to be met. So I thank you for the things that you were speaking to hearts, even as we had our palms down and our palms up, receiving from you. I thank you for what you will continue to speak to these, your daughters, even as they go from this place. We thank you that you are not far from us, that you did not leave us as orphans, but you came to us and you gave us your Holy Spirit. And through your written word and through your Holy Spirit, you lead us in how to live the way that you intended for us to live. And we thank you for that. May we be women who embrace the God language that you've created with us, that accept the God language that you have created in others, and that live out the fullness of your kingdom as a testimony to those who don't yet know you. In your name, amen.